Hi, you are listening to The Muslim Takeaway, a new podcast that hosts, or well, hopes to host, honest and unfiltered conversations about what it means to be a Muslim in today's socio-political climate, specifically in the West, and about all the learning, unlearning, and perhaps relearning that we could do to better understand our faith and our communities. I am Anna Diamond and today I am joined by my wonderful guest Iman Al-Sibasi, a human hybrid if there ever was one. I had the pleasure of working with Iman last year when we were both working on international climate strategy, uh, really, really important work. Uh, but what really impressed me about her is how versatile she is as a character, but also her really amazing journey to where she is today. She is a law graduate, uh, a civil servant, an entrepreneur, uh, an advocate for plant-based eating and, and an advocate for eco-friendly living. I mean, just a wholesome, amazing superwoman. Oh, and yes, she is also a Muslim and that's why she's here chit-chatting with me today. We will be talking about our individual responsibility in protecting our environment, embracing the beauty and the company of nature, and how... We can take some time off from the everyday city chaos and rumble and dust and smoke to be more mindful and grounded. Yeah, so let's go. Hi, Iman. Why don't you just take the floor? I'm a Lebanese, Pakistani, British hybrid. I was born in the UK, brought up between London and Qatar and Abu Dhabi. I'm a a bit of a melting pot for different cultures and different um, identities, which is lovely. Um, I'm all about, I guess, holistic living uh, in everything that I do. So whether that be from the food I eat, from um, the products that I use on my skin, from the content that I consume visually um, through words and, and the energy that I surround myself with, I try and make sure as much as I can that um, I'm surrounding myself with um, energy and with things that keep me grounded and at peace uh, as much as possible. You went from studying law to becoming a civil servant Um, and if you don't mind sharing what do you do as your kind of day-to-day activity at work but also kind of in non-work related um, time periods? Yeah so um, I studied law as you said and kind of worked in the commercial legal sector for a little did internships um, during the summers and if I'm honest I personally didn't enjoy the working environment some people do it just wasn't kind of my vibe Um, it was too competitive for me and I didn't feel like it nourished a part of myself uh, or my soul that I wanted my job to so I looked into something that I thought would help people in a way that I had been uh, had been role modeled to me as a child uh, my mum's also a civil servant, so I saw my mum delivering um, health policies to people and saw how it could help people. And I actually have this random memory of sitting under my dining table as a kid and just saying to myself, I want to help people and I want to travel around the world and help the public. Thinking I was just... <laughs> so lame, but I literally just remember it like so vividly. And um, yeah, so then I applied for the civil service. I applied to be a teacher as well. Um, 
and yeah so I got a job in the civil service and I'm currently working on uh, international climate policy so more so around how we get young people's voices heard in what we're doing uh, and how do we get wider civil society like faith communities and faith leaders more involved so yeah that's that's my that's my day job and by night uh, the cloak I wear is um, I also run a vegan Lebanese catering uh, business so a lot of uh, a lot of my passion is about cooking as well so that's part of my holistic living and I really uh, enjoy feeding people food savory and sweet um, that delivers goodness but doesn't kind of skimp on any flavor and and how does your work on with climate change feed into your engagement with the muslim community so there are a lot of faith communities uh, and you know interfaith and specific faith groups that are really really engaged on climate change trying to make a real difference in their community so even within the islamic faith uh, here in the uk um the there is there has been built the first eco mosque I believe it's the one that the first ever in eco mosque in the world in Cambridge, um, and wow. it's a way of as Muslims we can reduce our carbon emissions and our carbon footprint through the, our place of worship, and it's actually a really beautiful building. Um, like the area to make wudu is like a spa, genuine, beautifully done. Like the whole building is made out of wood, um, made out of engineered wood. Um, they actually have screen as well when you go in that you can see what their carbon emissions are and they compare them kind of week by week to show uh, what their energy output is and I, I think I think that's one of the main ways that I have seen within the Muslim community anyways um, that there's been kind of a huge push to get communities more involved with climate change and I think generally um, I mean my personal experience growing up is as a Muslim um, I, I, I didn't see many role models um, growing up of how to protect the environment that we're meant to be stewards of in Islam um, so I think seeing a, an eco mosque was just like amazing to the little kid me um, that knew I shouldn't use too much plastic and I know um, plastic isn't necessarily a change but you know they're two very interlinked issues but I think that's one major uh, major thing that I'd want to uh, kind of showcase. Um, in my work I, I mean, the most most of my work is with high level um, faith kind of representatives. So whether they be from the Church of England or um, uh, you know the Buddhist faith or the Hindu faith or Muslim faith, um, but it's more about in my job, anyways, getting high level uh, faith leaders to encourage their communities. Um, to reduce their emissions and there's so much great work that's happening across faith communities in the UK. There's an initiative called Climate Sunday which has been launched um, by uh, an organisation called Climate Sunday um, where churches across the UK have sermons on uh, sermons on during their Sunday service uh, about climate and the environment and this is all in the build uh, to next year's huge climate change conference which the UK is hosting and there's loads of other initiatives like that so through my job I engage with people that do that amazing amazing work like that um, and it is really fun and it really kind of like drives a a passion in me when I talk to them and when we work on projects together. Do you think more mosques will follow the example of the Cambridge Central Mosque, so the Eco Mosque, or do you think they see it as a more symbolic gesture 
or like solidarity in fight against climate change or do you think they will say actually this is a really great idea and we should jump on this and do something very similar very soon um i definitely don't think it was a symbolic gesture it was definitely a, a long-term initiative um to show to show and also to practically um reduce uh, carbon emissions for muslims as a community mm. um i can't I can't speak on whether it's going to happen and be rolled out across the UK and mosques internationally because I actually don't know. Um, but it is something that other faiths um, practice as well. So there's an initiative called Eco Synagogue uh, and Eco Churches, um, which are much more kind of um, widespread across the UK. Um, so there is definitely um, growth that we as Muslims um, can do. And that takes us kind of talking to our communities um, and really opening up these conversations about the mosque is meant to be a community hub. And as Muslims, we have to be stewards of this earth. So how do we merge our duties, our duty, one of our big duties as a Muslim to be stewards of this earth with um, what is meant to be our community uh, space and bring us all together. And I think that's what, that's a conversation that needs to be had more. So how do you think one could actually facilitate more conversations? How do you think um, religious scholars or, or people who work in mosques could more engage the ordinary pub, uh, person, the, the general public um, with, yeah. with these initiatives? Yeah, um, I definitely think within, I mean, there's great people that are already raising those conversations. Um, you've got the likes of um, Shannon Shah from the uh, Faith for Climate Network, and they're doing amazing things, and he really amplified the voice of Muslims within that group. Um, so I just think more of that needs to be heard, and there needs to just be, I think, just generally more of an openness. Um, I find a lot of my frustration within Muslim communities is that there's um, a disconnect between culture and religion, um, and sometimes culture can overtake uh, what we're meant to do in religion. So um, obviously, as Muslims, we're meant to protect the earth, and I think there doesn't need to be um, it doesn't need to be such a, a hard conversation to be had and for um, kind of the conversation around climate change to feel like it's a distant conversation. We're all part of this earth. Um, you know, when we die, we return to earth. In Yeah, you know, we come from we come from God and to him we will return. So we were created yeah. from from earth and we will return back to earth so we're going to be we're going to be buried in the dirt of this earth like we are part and parcel of the of the ground that we walk on and I think once we actually inner stand and absorb that I think that's where you can get more connected to it and um, just not feeling not kind of prioritizing I'm not saying everyone does this and everyone's guilty of it but kind of prioritizing materialism uh over prioritizing materialism over um over what is actually important in that we need to connect with ourselves with the earth and with others in a meaningful way um and for me one of the great ways that i kind of do that and something that can be taught to children through mosques and there's a lot of like community initiatives where you know after school clubs for kids and coffee clubs for mums and there's loads of different avenues that these kinds of things can be um taught through so one of the things that i love doing uh, and like I know a lot of people that do as well it's called grounding um, it's basically about connecting with the bare earth so walking on uh, grass or walking on sand or just walking on the bare earth with your feet 
Um, and it really actually helps you connect with the ground. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing because the earth is actually electrical and our bodies are bioelectrical. So when we're touching the earth, we, it sounds a bit hippie and it sounds a bit woo-woo, but um, there's science behind it. Um, so when we actually walk on the earth without our shoes on, without socks, we absorb electrons from the earth's surface and they help to neutralize the, the positively charged free radicals in our body that can damage ourselves. So it's a really, really good way. And there's lots of studies behind this um, that can, grounding can actually um, reduce or can even prevent um, some signs of inflammation. Uh, it can reduce some signs of injury. Um, obviously, this is this is part of a healthy lifestyle as well. So making sure that you're exercising, making sure that you're right uh, and that your mental state is uh, taken care of. But this is also a way that we can look after our physical and mental um, well-being. It's actually um, very poignant as well. As Muslims, we pray five times a day and during each prayer, you put your forehead to the ground. So if you pray outside, you are literally connecting through to the earth through that process of grounding and earthing. Um, and it's not just a, a movement. I think I do it as well that I kind of pray and I just, okay, let me just pray, put my hands up. Okay, put my hands up, my ears, okay, down to the floor. Okay, we're done. And not really connecting with why we have those movements. Um, and actually as well, when we come down, hands on our knees that is actually a really great stretch for your back so through our prayer God has given us uh God has given us a mechanism to uh, our our limbs um and to move our bodies through just um through obeying his commandments um so I just think it's really beautiful that these are things that we don't really think about but connecting connecting something we're commanded to do with something that is a duty within our religion of being a steward is it just makes things so much more um, fluid. I have increasingly moved into urban areas. So we, I think sometimes because life, especially in London, things move so quickly that you don't even have a chance to fully like reflect on what's happening in your life because you're just like, okay, cool. What's on the next, the next, the next, the next. Um, and something that I do anyways, I've actually started planting my own food, planting, growing my own food sprouting now but um wow. started growing. um i'll be able to you know in the next couple of months have carrots and squash and beetroots and um grow my own food from, from the soil and i, I think you've got that sense of like nurturing something and it's just so much more you've got so much more of a sense of accomplishment versus just going to the shops and picking them up um but i also uh, i mean I've done a you lot also reading just just to add on that and I think you also learn how much it takes like time and yeah. effort just to grow one yeah, exactly. pumpkin or, or a carrot it's so true like you totally feel the difference and like I mean there's been a lot of research that's been done around eating seasonal foods and eating foods that are um foods that are grown in the uh, environment in which you live or near which you live and that is the best way to eat because your body adapts to the environment that you live in um, so the food that is grown in that environment is also the best to nourish your body at that time so for example um, potatoes and starchy vegetables are grown in winter, and that's when our bodies need water. those vegetables provide us with energy that can keep us warm um, during the colder months so it's amazing how like again how there's so much interconnectedness between what we require as humans for our bodies and also what nature provides for us at that time so I go to the farmer's market and it really connects me with the food you get to see what comes in seasonally you create community connections with people that grow the food you can speak to them um, where it's grown how it's grown um, and I also have been getting tips on how to grow my own veg and stuff but I think 
being connected to where your food come from really can root you and grow um and it does for me anyways and there's a lot of research to back up that that's that that's a way to not only improve your physical health but also your mental health and i think it's really important to just mention that vegetarian diets as a kind of movement have been around for millennia um to be honest the first kind of noted um vegetarian <coughs> civilization was found in the um, indus valley in around 3300 3, to 1300 uh, before christ which seems literally i mean it's ages ago and these are these are noted civilizations that ate a majority plant-based diet and i think it's really important also to just mention that there's no one diet that fits all like i will never preach about someone going fully plant-based or cutting out a whole um, group from your diet I think it's really important to understand what works for you because what, what works for one person and one person thrives on another person might not um, but in terms of the environmental impact really key to make sure that through your diet you're trying to have as minimal um, in- environmental impact as possible to ensure that not only you can live a better life but the future generations that come after you live a better life so through um, like factory farming is a major major kind of source of um, emissions and it was actually found that emissions from animal farming would equal the third biggest country in the world wow. in, in terms of their emissions. Um, so it is really wild that, you know, we're so reliant on having meat every single day and every single meal that we're allowing that to disrupt our ecosystems, our environment and our climate. And that's going to have really, really long term effects. Um having having one meat-free day a week or having two to three meat-free meals a week can actually reduce your carbon footprint quite significantly actually and I think I think the figures are around if you have one meat-free one meat-free meal a week as a family the environmental impact would be the same as taking 16 million cars off the road having one meat-free meal a week across the whole of the UK if every single that's what it would equal so it's not even that you have to make a massive change in your diet and your lifestyle but being able to do that and there's so many great alternatives like it doesn't even have to be expensive you know you don't have to go out and get a fake meat you can use lentils you can use mushrooms you can use carrots and it's a really really great way to introduce diversity into your diet that can help help with your gut health help with your skin health help with your brain health uh, and really just to explore foods you know um and also get back to in Islam, how we're meant to consume food. We're told that you should eat everything that is halal. And there's a, a long kind of list of what is halal and what is not halal um, in terms of what we can eat. But the Prophet didn't eat meat every day. So as a culture, as a, a, an international community, why has it now turned into every single meal has to be meat or you have to have meat every single day? He actually only ate meat. It's been noted that he only ate meat when he went out when he was invited to someone's house so if he's meant to be the greatest example that we follow surely we should be then following that and not consuming meat constantly important to note as well that as uh as BAME people as black minority Asian people um the impacts of climate change are actually going to be felt by us the most um and it's it's uh something that's really, really important to understand. And as, as communities as a whole, we need to understand that and act in a way in accordance that will make sure that that is minimized as much as we can.
So doing things like, you know, walking uh, more. If you can walk instead of taking a five minute journey, like I walk to the farmer's market every week, it's a 45 minute walk or a five minute drive. But me walking, I also get to breathe in fresh air, you know, I get to look at the sky and not have to worry about anything because I'm not stressed while I'm driving. Uh, eating, eating more plant-based and things that aren't necessarily expensive. You know, it's been portrayed as this expensive lifestyle on social media because that's what social media does. <laughs> it, it portrays an unattainable lifestyle, but it is very attainable and it just takes small, small diet and lifestyle changes to actually reduce your emissions that aren't in a way that would really have a huge, um, mean that you have to shift your lifestyle in a massive way. How does the plant-based diet differ from vegan diet or vegetarianism? Um, and how, how can uh, people start as kind of first steps? I'm not the leading authority on this, so this is my interpretation of how I see it. But um, vegan is an all-encompassing lifestyle. So if someone says they're vegan, they don't consume anything or wear anything um, that uh, comes from an animal. So that might you know, the obvious of not eating meat, not eating dairy, but also not eating honey um, because that comes from bees, not wearing silk. Um, some, some vegans don't eat figs um, because I think they get pollinated by bees. Uh, not wearing leather, not wearing, not using skincare or anything on your skin or your hair that was tested on animals. So it's an all-encompassing lifestyle. Um, so vegetarians uh, just don't consume meat or fish uh, and plant-based is where the majority of your diet will be made up of um, plant sources. So some people who follow a plant diet might eat honey, um, but that's not to say that you can also incorporate all products in a plant-based diet. It just means that the base of your diet is made up of plants. Um, I think the second question on kind of transitioning, as I said, I don't think that there's one diet that works for everyone. Um, so I'm not, I'm not here to preach, you should do this at all. Um, but I definitely think that there are small changes that everyone can make. So for example, a meat-free meal a week. Um, and dairy, I mean, I personally don't consume dairy, but if people want to consume dairy, I think it's really important to make sure that the, the animal products that you consume come from a good source um, to make sure that you're able to get as much of the core nutrients and essential vitamins that you're going to get from those products. Um, I think cheap animal products, I'm very dubious about how much nutrition you can actually get from them. So good quality meat, good quality um, dairy, it's always the best route to go down to understand actually what you're putting in your body. And I'm very much the same as well. You mentioned um, plant milks. I'm very much the same in the sense that, yes, you can find plant milks for a pound, but they put a lot of um, preservatives in them. Um, they do put supplements in them sometimes. But to be honest, I either make them myself. It's really, really easy. And it is usually cheaper just with almonds and water and, you know, filtered or spring water and a bit of salt. Um, or I make sure that if I'm going to buy them, that that's all they include. Um, because I want to make sure that everything that I'm or as much as I'm consuming um, is as natural as possible. Um, to be honest, transitioning to a vegan diet, I actually didn't I actually didn't mean to cut out all meat and dairy from my diet. It just so happened that way. Um, I'm really into training and exercising. Uh, and I was kind of 
I, I love doing like uh, research and experimenting on my own body. So I went through a period where I thought, okay, I'm going to try and cut out certain foods and see how it affects my um, performance and figured out that as I slowly was cutting out certain foods that my performance was increasing and all those foods that I was cutting out tended to be animal products. Um, And that's for me. Yeah, that's just what worked for me. So that's not to say that that'll work for everyone. Um, But that's just what I found. Um, So I can't advise on what someone can do to transition to a vegan kind of Mm. or plant-based diet. Sorry, Um, But I just definitely think it's about understanding uh you know understanding the source of your foods really i don't think once you understand the source of your foods where they're sourced from how they're sourced how the animals are treated what conditions they care once you're much more cognizant of all of that i think you're more likely to change your um your consuming habits in terms of where you buy things how you buy things how often you buy things and i think you realize how much you would have to spend on having a quality piece of meat or a glass of milk that is from a cow that is able to roam free and graze freely and eat um, eat how how these animals are actually meant to eat, it will put you off buying it so often <laughs> because it's that expensive. So you have channeled your own personal lifestyle choice choices and and healthy living um, experience to something that is more collective. So you have uh, launched a plant-based Lebanese catering business and it's called Beirut, um, in, but like Beirut as in root, like beetroot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course it also works in reference to the capital of Lebanon, uh, Beirut. Um, and um, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? What was your inspiration and how did it just launch? And when did you launch it? Yeah, so um, again, I feel like a lot of things in my life just happen out of synchronicity and aren't necessarily that forced. Um, and this was another one of those things. I stopped eating meat and I really, really, when I used to live in Abu Dhabi and Qatar and obviously go to go to Lebanon, uh, I loved a shawarma, like a proper shawarma go to the shop on the corner, you know, they cut it off the skewer, put it in a sandwich, a bit of tahina, uh, garlic and lemon, chips, like I used to love it. So I was like, I'm craving a shawarma, but I can't eat a shawarma because I choose not to. Um, so I just started doing some research about, you know, meat alternatives. And by that point, I was not eating meat, but was only eating veg. I wasn't eating any like meat alternatives, tofu, I wasn't having any of that. So I started researching um, meat alternatives, how to make your own, and came across this thing called seitan, uh, which is spelled S-E-I-T-A-N. And it's made Wait, with- uh, a Satan? Like, yeah, yeah. Like Satan. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same, no, I know. Um, yeah, so it's it's made of a flour called vital wheat gluten, which is really, really high in gluten, high in protein. Um, and when you mix it with spices and water, it makes it kind of mimics the texture of meat. So I ended up making a shawarma spice mix and testing it out. And like it tasted exactly the same as a lamb shawarma you would get from um, like the like any legit shawarma place in the Middle East. Like my yeah, brother tried and, and all of them on that that serves it on Edgware Road. <laughs> uh, 
I've never had them there, but yeah, you know, it was authentic. It was authentic. So I was just like, okay, cool. I haven't eaten meat in about a year at this point. Bear in mind, I'd like slowly kind of cut things out. And I hadn't, meat was like the first thing that I cut out. So I hadn't eaten it in a while. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm just like freaking out. This tastes really similar. Let me test it with my family. And my brother is the biggest carnivore I know. Like constantly eats meat, not happy if there's, um, you know, if he goes a couple of days without meat. So he tried it and he was like, this is amazing. Like he always now asks me for it. So I was like, okay, maybe I should do something with this because I knew there was no one that was doing a vegan shawarma. So consulted with a couple of friends. They were like, yeah, good idea, whatever. And then I ended up launching uh, with a supper club at first. So I sold a club at the tail end of 2018 um, for 40 people. Uh, and that went amazing. Everyone really enjoyed the shawarma. Everyone said it was really authentic. And then I started basically doing um food markets so, and it was going well um but then kind of balancing that with a full-time job it just wasn't sustainable for me it did not work for my mental health and I was getting I got to burn out a few times and just thought I need to make a way I need to find a way to make this fit in with my lifestyle um and then COVID happened <laughs> so that put a stop thing and I was planning to then launch launch online in September uh, and then the Beirut explosion happened on the 4th of August. Um, and I decided within two or three days that I was going to launch um, that week uh, with all profits from the products that I was selling going to um, Impact Lebanon, which was uh, distributing funds amongst NGOs on the ground in Beirut. And just it amazing. Like I genuinely did not expect the response that I got. So I was just so grateful and still am grateful for everyone that ordered from me then and now I am in the process of designing my website and my packaging so it's beautifully perfect and exactly how I want it so I can launch and have everyone in the UK able to buy my products um, directly from me um, I think it's really important as well that from for me anyways a large part of what I perceive to be my purpose and what I understand my purpose to be um, because I do truly believe that God, the creator of the universe, has put us here to deliver a purpose. And every single person is here for a reason and we're where we're meant to be at any particular point. And I truly believe that my purpose is to understand my the region that I'm from better and help support as much as I can, because every single drop in the every single drop can make an ocean, you know, we world that we can make an effort to change the world. So um, my product and from when I started my business. Uh, I use Palestinian fair trade products and donate part of my uh, to a um, to a medical charity which which supports refugees um, along the Greek coast. So I really, really do truly believe that there is there is merit to supporting the region which you are from or to support a purpose which helps others. Um, and that's what I try and do through my business as much as I can, honestly. And that was something that I did. Um, and I hope to do and was able to do because of people and their support. And, and I think it's worth reiterating that you began all of this in your own kitchen and there was no, oh, yeah. you know, seed investment or there were no big chefs coming in or, you know, any of that. So you're entirely, this whole thing was 100% self-made and not, not only that, you were inspired even before becoming anything huge or you know significant in kind of commercial sense you were inspired to help 
um, mm. the home back in the region, mm-hmm. even though you have yeah. lived in, in the UK for, for many, many years. I mean, you essentially grew up here. Why and what do you think uh, propelled you to try to help the Lebanese people following mm. the Beirut explosion? Um, because understandably, of course, there were a lot of um, donation points going around on social media. People were trying to raise money. What mm. what clicked for you in saying, hey, I need to do this and, and deliver every single order myself? Because I remember you had this thing going on where you said, if you order, I will personally deliver it to you. Um, so you put a significant amount of your your private time into delivering them mm. as well. So like it was very deeply personal to you. So I, I'd be ke- yeah. curious to know what made you go to that length in, in doing things in the UK and then, you know, sending back the profits to Lebanon. For me, it was very much about feeling like I could do something. Um, it's, it is a selfish way to see things, but I think it's in a, in a crisis like that, yeah. you know, you've never experienced something on this scale like as humans and within our generation we have never seen an explosion to that scale that has had as much human impact as it did I think I just felt helpless I definitely felt helpless that I couldn't go there I couldn't sweep the streets I couldn't you know sit down with people there and talk to them and make sure they were fine so I had to put my put my time and all of that kind of pent up anger and frustration into something that was productive and for me you know selling my products and donating the profits was something that was productive it hit home to me that I wasn't the only one um so I also held a mental well-being lunch so I basically cooked a lunch for people a packed lunch and organized for a group of us to Uh, to kind of meet up and have a conversation an honest open vulnerable conversation about our mental health following the explosion and it was really really beautiful for people to come together and share their share their experiences and what was shocking is that everyone was feeling the same thing we weren't alone in this and that was something that I felt I had contributed back it may have been small but I I was able to kind of make myself feel less crazy because I genuinely felt like you know it was my fault I had some part to play in there. all these feelings of guilt in my mind and knowing that other people were going through the same thing I didn't feel so alone in it so I definitely wanted through selling my products and through holding a mental well-being lunch to create that sense of community as much as I had the power to do. I mean it's it's pretty incredible because most of the time especially now um, not to play the power of social media down by any means but um, we do sometimes, I mean, I've been guilty of this as well, just by sharing a few photos or posts, I kind of, you know, the, the idea of slacktivism becomes real, where I'm like, okay, well, I've done my part, so now I feel good. But then actually seeing individuals like you who say, you know what, I am going to share a few posts, but also I am going to take this beyond just the virtual world and I will make something practical out of it in order to give back to the community that is yeah. clearly suffering at the moment. Touch on the slacktivism point. I think it is so true. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I think everyone's guilty of it. I've shown everyone that I care about it, posted, cool, like, move on. Um, but I think 
as much as we can to understand ourselves. And I think I've said awareness about 50 times in this conversation, but actually awareness is the key in every single facet of life. And I think especially around um, issues that really impact people, having conversations with others about them that other people might not necessarily understand it as well. So, for example, yes, I had conversations around the like, uh, yes, I had conversations around the Beirut explosion with my colleagues, with people that didn't necessarily understand it, but also in other um, facets of um, people's struggles, um, making other people understand it um, really kind of reduces ignorance and increases tolerance and where people are more aware that tolerance or tolerance probably isn't the right word but that kind of understanding of other people's views may not necessarily be able to empathize but understanding other people's experiences I think is something that when you hear about something there is a duty to share with others you might not be able to donate but having conversations around it so for example after George Floyd was murdered having conversations conversations with white counterparts um, about the impact of race, about the impact of racism um, in the workplace or generally in society. But also, I think also just raising general awareness about conversations that people are about. So whether that be about faith, whether that be about gender, whether that be about sexual orientation, that is really, really key um, rather than just posting a picture and feeling like you've done something or someone liked it. So you get that instant gratification of what social media is meant to do and it's meant to be a drug. Um, but actually translating that into real world action, I think, is really important. I think this episode was so wholesome. We talked about Iman's work in advocating for macro and micro measures against climate deterioration. We talked about her personal endeavours in managing a small business that introduces people to Lebanese plant-based cuisine. And also, when there is a need, gives back to the people of Lebanon. And then we also reflected on what the Muslim community can do more to learn from its own religious traditions and in doing so, become an ally to protecting the environment. We only have one earth, one home, and this is it. It protects us, it feeds us, it nurtures us, allows us to grow. And so why not be more conscious of how we live on it and how we live with it? Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I did when creating it. So please do let me know your thoughts on Twitter at Muslim Takeaway. And until next time, stay awake, stay alert, stay safe. And may you stay utterly and thoroughly and magically blessed. Bye bye.